Hello, everyone. I'm Kevin Winder, and thanks for tuning in to another podcast of Beyond Everything Radio. And as always, I have a question for you. Do you know the difference between a good marriage and a great marriage? Does excitement in relationships fade over time? In today's podcast and post, we continue our series entitled Marriage Tune-Up with a look at so-called good marriages. I'll challenge the world's understanding of love along with psychology's strategy for healthy relationships. Join me now as we see beyond everything and discover the most unconventional, risky strategy that will turn good marriages into great ones. Hello, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. I'm so glad to have you here. I really am. Um, This is not the kind of content that is widely promoted. I don't have commercials. Um, I don't go around talking too much about it. Um, And here you are. And uh, I really have appreciated your comments so far this year. You know, most people are at the gym Uh, They're on a diet. They're making changes to their budget, right? They're trying to give their life a little bit of a tune-up, get it back in course for 2024. So I have started this year with the Marriage Tune-Up series, and we are now in part three, and I'm super glad to have you here. And I want to say thank you for those of you who have shared your comments. I'm glad that you have liked the series so far and that it's really perking your interest. Uh, You know, I do have a perspective and it's different than conventional wisdom. It's different than what you're going to hear in psychology. And that is also going to be challenged here today. Um, And I, I just think our marriages are so powerful and so amazing and there's so much potential. And yet uh, we just kind of, they just fall to the backdrop of life unnecessarily. And so I want to challenge you to tune up your marriage Uh, Tuning up your marriage will mean that you become more self-aware. It means that your life gets a tune-up, right? You are in this with somebody who loves you and who can help transform you. Now, I'm going to talk about a good marriage in comparison to a great marriage, and then you're going to see where I'm coming from, okay? So let's dive right in. This is podcast number 415. It's part three in our marriage tune-up series, and I call it The Good marriage. So if you have been in business at all, you probably have heard of this amazing book written by Jim Collins, and it's called Good to Great. And the premise of his book is simply that the enemy of becoming a great company is being a good company, right? That good is the enemy of great. And I think that is also true for marriage. There really are very few great marriages, because so many of them are good or good enough, right? And so they don't have that uh, measure of chronic, toxic, pain, volatile, napalm, (laughs) whatever, uh, explosive, uh, detrimental, horrible, painful, suffering marriages have. They have a measure of getting alongness, right? And they're good enough. And as a result, they just kind of coast along in the backdrop. And I want to challenge that. And I'm going to challenge that by kind of uncovering some of these deeper realities beneath the surface of what's going on in our marriage. 
And I'm going to use the culture and I'm going to use the Bible and I'm going to use some other ways to kind of tease that out so that you can look at things from a different perspective. And I think that opens up you and your marriage to transformation. Now, I've shown already in this series how our culture is tremendously deficient. It has a really low view of marriage, a low view of love, a low view of sex. And I'm challenging all of that. It's actually not wisdom at all. It's, it's actually the opposite of wisdom. It's foolishness. And because the standard is so low, I think that's why people think they are in good marriages. There just aren't enough exceptional, great marriages around. You know, these uh, good marriages are the ones that warn everybody about getting married. Oh, you got to pick the right person. Oh, don't do it too soon. Now our culture is, is fearful of marriage because they see these high divorce rates. And then those who are married are, are in living divorces. They probably better off divorced. And so they're like, man, this is not a good institution to put your trust in. And no one has the skill to guide our culture back. Right? There's, there, we've turned loose of the biblical perspective. And there's reasons why, which I'm going to uh, uh, get to here in just a couple of seconds. But now we're in this place where the world has really deficient, really low views of marriage. And so my question is, are our marriages really good or are they just normal? They're consistent. They're, they're average. Is, is average good? You know, my premise today is that rather than being transformed by love, we have negotiated for an acceptable surrogate, which we say is a quote unquote good marriage. You know, yeah, I love my husband. Yeah, I love my wife, but you know, whatever. And then you have all these other things on the side that, you know, you talk to the guys about, you talk to the girls about, the, the issues, the concerns, the things that never change, the things that frustrate you, the cold shoulders that occur, the standoffishness, the aloofness, the, the little bickering, the arguing, all that stuff that comes around in between the moments of niceness. So we've all been taught this biblical idea of marriage. Eh, maybe not all, but we've certainly seen it on display in our culture. And we've heard pastors and teachers talk about it. But I want to say, I don't think the biblical revelation is what we've been taught. See, we've all heard pastors recite Paul's teachings about marriage. And religion still imposes this patriarchal hierarchy. You know, it, it's, it's top down. It's God, then the man, then the women, and then the children. Like, you got to get that order right or your marriage isn't a biblical marriage, right? It's that kind of essence. And, of course, feminism has pushed back against that. And the church has pushed back in modernity against it. And, you know, of course, traditionalism and modern ideas, progressive ideas clash here. And then we get into these Bible debates and arguments about, well, I, it, you know, you're supposed to love your wife and she's supposed to respect her husband. And in the end, if there's ever a, a stalemate, the man gets the final say, right? You know, and I, I use that, I have to admit, to get the remote from my wife because, you know, of course women can't choose TV correctly. We all know that. 
Okay, I'm just kidding. All right. My point is, is that that kind of hierarchy has been trickled down into the culture. Yes, there's a biblical place for it, but I just think too many of us over-identify with the structure and forsake the foundation upon which that structure is supposed to work, which is mutual submission. That's Ephesians 5.21. So then Paul dives deep into the marriage framework, but it's all under this heading of mutual submission out of reverence to the Lord. If you have a marriage of mutual submission, the structure kind of doesn't matter. The structure is not the goal of our marriage, right? The goal of the marriage should not get be getting your wife to comply or to submit, right? And it, the goal of the marriage is not to have the man be like some overlord in some regard. If you have mutual submission, the, the structure takes care of itself. The goal of marriage is transformation through love. So if we get love right, the self-emptying of each person into the third thing, the marriage, it displaces the requirement for some gender-based roles. That means that great marriages are free not imposed, right? You can have flexibility and nuance in the way the roles unfold in your marriage. Every marriage can be different and unique, but what needs to happen at the core of the marriage is not a role-based marriage functional kind of outside-in structure. It's the inside-out self-emptying, mutual submission heart of the individual that makes a great marriage free and not imposed. Now think about it. I know some of you may be arguing with that. I don't know. I don't want you saying that. You know, these women, they're going to start to try and take over or something, whatever. Um, all I can say is can some pastor, some Bible scholar, some teacher out there show me Solomon's flow chart for his marital success yeah you know song of solomon like five two where they eat friends drink and be drunk with love if you read song of solomon there's no flow chart there's no hierarchy it is just all enraptured self-giving love of the other oh and i can hear you now just in the background, I can totally just feel you uh, twitching a little bit and saying, you know, Kevin, Song of Solomon kind of depicts that early phase of love, that infatuation of youth, right? So let me challenge that assumption, okay? Um, I think people, all people, really know intuitively, you, you know deep down that love is more than that infatuation. You kind of know that that love between Solomon and his bride is how it's supposed to work. And that is why our culture's music is drenched in the exuberance of love or the pain of losing it. Listen to these words by one of my favorite bands, Pink Floyd, called One of My Turns. Listen to this. Day after day, love turns gray like the skin on a dying man. And night after night, we pretend it's all right, but 
I've grown colder and you've grown colder and nothing is very much fun anymore. And I can feel one of my turns coming on. I, I can feel as cold as a razor blade, tight as a tourniquet, dry as a funeral drum. Like that is so vivid. It's so, it just gets at that. If you've been in a loving relationship that you got in a fight, you're having that tension and you can just feel this pain in your chest, in your heart and this emotional, it hurts. Like it is, this is a descriptive term. Like, so we all know. So let the universality of love sink in here for a minute. Okay. Transforming love is the design. Think about that. The design of a marriage is to transform us in love. And I know we're in a culture where people are like, I don't even think we need to get married. You can be transformed. I don't need to be married. I can just do my own thing. Whatever. I'm going to stop. Okay. Go listen to part two. uh, And then now listen to what I'm going to say. Love is such a vital need for our lives. It lifts us out of the most dire straits. Our greatest pain is the loss of that connection, that intimacy, the security that love affords us. And we go through life chasing love in one form or another, yet very few of us ever really grasp it. Some people become these serial love addicts, only sticking around in a relationship for the thrill of love's first chapter. Then when it kind of tapers off, they bail and go find somebody new. The biblical trajectory isn't a hierarchy. The biblical trajectory is that love is cultivated, it's explored, and it evolves and expands over time. The love that you have in infatuation doesn't taper off, it expands over time. And it remains the single driving force for joy and intimacy and connection and satisfaction and permanent oneness. Like love is behind and through and in everything that we do in terms of relationship and marriage. Human love is then the microcosm to experience the divine macrocosm of love. So like we live in this microcosm, which is a part of the bigger divine flow of love. So this is why marriage, which I talked about before, is a marriage of three. It's two people and God. By contrast, though, the world likes to tell us that love fades out and it never really lasts or that it just changes shape. Uh, you get over that infatuation. I mean, but consider Jesus' comment here. Uh, he was talking about marriage and divorce in Matthew chapter 19. And this is what he says. He says, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. In other words, that wasn't designed to be that way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Okay, so let's don't get hung up on some of that. What I'm trying to help you see is this trajectory that 
the ex- expectation is that yeah, it's not supposed to it's not supposed to go that way, but it goes that way, and we all know it goes that way. And the word there is sclerocardia, right? When he says because of your hardness of heart, right? It literally means the uncircumcised heart. And this kind of goes beyond stubborn or hard-hearted. What he's saying is that the epicenter of our being, the heart is the center of the will. It's the center of the understanding in this culture. It's not the emotions. It's that part of your you, that deep part of yourself, your ontological center, your true inner self, if you will, hasn't been sheared. It hasn't been shaped by love. And that this center of you has the heart overgrowth, which keeps it from experiencing and living from love. Sclerocardia, uncircumcised heart. So you have overgrowth on your heart. That is what is making your marriages fade. Sclerocardia. See, our confused world, though, has renamed love, right? It says, well, that thing at the beginning is not love. What Love is the part after everything settles down. That first part's just infatuation, right? Isn't that what we're hearing? And if you kind of buy into that train of thought, then you do see love as that calmed down version that emerges when the excitement wears off. Now, infatuation I would say, is 100% love at its birth. It's, it's love as it emerges. I mean, think about this. It is love, not infatuation, which completely takes us over by the experience. Love is disorienting because it finds and accepts the true beloved. Love is the celebration of that discovery of being found and of finding. That's why you forego sleep and we all rearrange our schedules to be with this person as much as possible. We stay up late and we we do a million other self-denying gestures while all the other endeavors of our life kind of fade into the background. You know, it's like, well, I'll study for the test later. I'll be late to work. You know, it's like everything is like secondary. That's love. That is absolutely the power of love. The giving of oneself in love is this one flesh impulse. And of course, in the infatuations, it naturally leads and yearns for sexual intimacy. That's the direction. It's built that way. Now, wisdom admonishes us to not awaken this loving impulse until marriage. But the omnipresent kind of low view of sex in our culture betrays the beloved in exchange for their flesh. And that's the foundation of insecurity. Do you understand that? Like when you meet each other and you're hot and heavy and you're just like, I just want to get in bed with that person. You're actually forsaking the person in exchange for their flesh. And it's the foundation of insecurity because if in the most infatuated place when you're giving your love and your life away, you are willing to forsake the beloved and take their flesh then 
there cannot be security later when things cool off or get normalized. Do you understand? See, after infatuation, sobriety sets in, we are told. Right? Things calm down. And of course, you can't sustain that kind of energy and focus. Everything else in life, as C.S. Lewis would say, would, would simply not be able to, to work. And that's why love has to evolve. It doesn't become something else. It just it evolves into this bigger, wider fabric into which you continue the same gesture of self-giving, self-emptying, and discovery of the self, the other person, the beloved. See, the rest of the person, though, usually during this phase of the relationship emerges. Right? So this is the part where you start to discover, uh, you know, maybe you have a talk about their body count. Maybe you have a talk about their debt. Maybe you have a talk about something else. Maybe you start to see habits that you didn't think. Maybe you didn't realize they were a smoker or a drinker or a cusser or a chewer. You know, maybe whatever it is, like you, you find something and you're like, wah, wah, wah. Like, but if love has its way, this is the intimate context of two selfless givers that they can now share life incrementally transforming each other. Like love is the context where each beloved receives one another and everything that comes with them. So you start to say, okay, well, then I guess the debt comes with you because I love you. I deal with the debt. And in the safety of love, we receive the healing by one another as our pain is revealed and the hurting place within each of us is touched with love by the other. It's that acceptance. It's like, it's not that it's like, I love you despite. However, love doesn't usually have its way with us, does it? We kind of get to these points and, you know, psychology has taught us to never settle. Psychology has taught us to, you know, you got, you can't be with somebody who's toxic or dangerous or something else. And if you've got something there that you don't like, you better get away. But, you, of course, you've already given your bodies away to each other, and now there's just usury if you stick around. Do you see where all the problems start to emerge? See, in a good marriage, we can hide. We can pretend. We can front. We can posture. We stop the healing flow of love's work. In our fear of abandonment, vulnerability, or weakness, we cover up all, all that stuff with these figurative fig leaves, right? But eventually we know the curtain drops. The other shoe always comes down kicking when we see the unredeemed parts of our beloved. Right? That's when we get offended or disappointed or disgusted or our nose turns up. Right? We turn love into judgment and condemnation even, resentment, bitterness. All these creep into these good marriages. And then we abandon love either by leaving or by staying in character, you know, just judging or hiding, never giving up the charade. So when two surface level selves negotiate an existence, it's not the flow of love at all. It's the magnetic attraction of mutual dysfunction. Think about that. That's what we're calling a good marriage. The unredeemed aspects of ourself can either repel or even attract one another, right? So non-judging love finds our pain and heals it so, so it can be transformed. 
Do you know that you can only transform or transmit your pain? And love is the thing that transforms it. And if love isn't reaching your pain, I promise you, somewhere in your life, you are transmitting your pain. And psychology says broken people are toxic and we have to have boundaries. And love's design, though, is that brokenness is wrapped securely and cherished in its brokenness. This is the macrocosm of what God's love does for all of us. Yeah, you don't have to believe it. You can ignore it, deny it, or reject it. That's completely up to you. But in our brokenness, we struggle to perceive it. You can frame it however you want, but it's just something you're not perceiving or you're willing not to perceive. The macrocosm of God's love finds us infinitely precious even in our inability or unwillingness to love God back. Romans 5 says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. While we were enemies? You mean I didn't have to do something to perform to get better? The love was just there? The reconciling, reconciling love while I was an enemy? That's the macrocosm. And folks, I'm bringing it into the microcosm. That's what love should look like on the horizontal plane. And throughout the Bible, we're given so many love stories which reveal the macrocosm of God's love. And that's how we learn how to love others in a million different microcosms. Do you see it? There's a vertical and then there's an infinite form of horizontal. Now, good marriages tiptoe around all of our buried pain. Good knows not to poke the bear. Good marriages mostly get along but can't suppress the unhealed parts forever. And good marriages function. They cooperate. They negotiate. And they partially satisfy with punctuated moments of intimacy, which quickly vaporize. It's just it's good sometimes, but most of the time it's just kind of eh. Good marriages warn everybody else about marriage, right? Now, if you're in a good marriage, I'd like to offer you a final consideration here. We are all closer to a great marriage than we realize. We don't need a therapist to drudge up a lifetime of pain or patterns, I assure you. All they're going to do is rename us with some useless diagnostic term. doesn't do any of us any good. Just like driving at night, we need not see the whole way to the journey, but only the next hundred feet or so. You don't need a complete solution. You just need a change of heart. You just need to have that foreskin cut off your heart. Remember, a true marriage is the divesting of two individuals into a shared identity. And those unredeemed parts that we dislike about our spouse, those are a shared problem. That is not your spouse's problem. That's where psychology gets us totally wrong. That problem is not theirs alone. It's now yours. It's ours. So if we're offended at ugliness, it's because we have stopped beholding the beloved within. A good marriage has something a bad marriage, which I call a living divorce, doesn't. Right? A good marriage does have this. It does have two mostly willing people. Like they kind of like each other. They get along. They're favorable towards one another, right? Now, if we generally like our spouse as a person, not just 
for what they can do for us, but we generally like them, then a great marriage is really within our reach. The way back to love is actually on a path we've already traveled together. See, visit your relationship lost and found. (laughs) That's how I like to think of it. You're going to have to go back to where you left stuff and maybe pick up some of the pieces. The thing that kept you infatuated was the discovery of the beloved within and despite everything else that was going on. And it was the, the beloved discovering you in within all that was going on. And the beloved with whom you were once infatuated is still hiding deep within the years of wear and tear, burdens and pain. Just leave the 99 other things and go find what has wandered off. A forsake judgment, seriously. Stop with the scorecard. Just stop judging them, blaming them. Forsake all the secrets, okay? Oh, they're keeping something from me. I just know it or whatever. Listen, secrets exist. Just know they exist. You don't need to know them. You don't need to share them. Just give yourself away again. That's like saying give trust again. Remember last week? Trust isn't something that's earned on the other side. Trust is you giving you away again. Oh, gosh, I can hear it now. Yeah, it might go bad. But that's why psychology can't get you back. But love can. Love is going to empty it all. It's going to die It's going to risk it all. Psychology plays it safe. It keeps up barriers and boundaries and makes you earn and has a scorecard and prove yourself to be an individuated, strong, independent person. And then I can be the same. And that's how we're going to have a healthy relationship. It's all BS. Love is big. It is a macrocosm. And it is also small. It's the microcosm. Follow the big. Go big or live without love. A good marriage has is largely loveless. But great marriages are made of two givers and two forgivers. In great marriages, love is a guillotine of vulnerability where each puts their heads in and hands over the rope to the other person. Great marriages become safe places to bleed. They are refuges, refuges for the weak, the addicted, the failure. Are you with someone who you can be weak with, who you can reveal your addictions if they're not obvious? Is it someone who you can reveal your failures to or you're trying to keep all that hidden? You're hiding behind your fig leaf. You're trying not to show your your vulnerabilities. You're not trying not to show those parts of yourself. You're hiding the bank statements and the credit card bills or the gambling receipt or whatever it is. None of us are what we've done. You are not what you are going to do. You're not any of that. We are not our accomplishments, nor are we our failures. Psychology loves to tell us that our doing creates our being. And then you have to establish whether you're going to love or be close to a person or trust a person or have a healthy relationship based upon 
behavior. Our ontology, our true self, that true person isn't found by psychological reflection. It isn't found by the right behavior. It isn't found by sinless perfection. Our ontology, our true self, is who God says we are. No one in the universe can say who you are except your maker. And your maker has said that you are the beloved. Now, great marriages love the beloved. That's what it was. Song of Solomon is talking about the beloved. God talks about the beloved bride. That's you. That's me. The beloved is the person within it all, despite all of the unredeemed parts. And yes, there's a lot of junk and baggage that we bring to relationships. There's a lot of pain in unredeemed parts and unhealthy parts. But if you're in love, those are temporary because those are no longer your problems. You have to sort out on your own before you're worthy of a relationship. Those are now shared with the beloved and you work on them together. I promise if two beloved people find and are found again, a completely new relationship emerges from where it was originally abandoned. And you know where I'm pointing to, don't you? That's right. The moment the excitement supposedly wore off. May God bless you as you contemplate these things. <laughs>